Overworked, a podcast. Bold storytelling. Balanced lives. Brighter futures. Welcome everyone to Overworked. It's our second episode and I know I said excited several times last time, but again, excited to be back with Challen, Caitlin, and Jill. We also have a special guest, Rachel Misick, who we'll talk about a little bit later on in the show. She is the author of Second to None, which we are so excited about. We're also going to talk a little bit about International Women's Day. That is this week and really this month we're celebrating the month of the women. So Challen, do you want to tell us a little bit about International Women's Day and how it got its start? Absolutely. So yes, it's Women's History Month in March, which, okay, one month out of 12, I'll take it. But eventually, I think we'll uh, have an even split across the year. But International Women's Day in particular is super exciting to me. It kind of highlights all of the things that women are doing and have done to improve our lives. It's not just a holiday for husbands and coworkers to give you breakfast and flowers, but it's an opportunity to actually talk about all of the ways that we have already made progress and what we can do to make even more. But a little history, International Women's Day can be traced back all the way to 1908 when women working in a clothing manufacturing in New York City went on strike due to poor working conditions. Pretty common back then, Um, but it's actually a really popular international holiday too. Um, A lot of other countries have been celebrating International Women's Day for even longer than those of us here in the U.S. It was formally established in 1975 by the United Nations. So I know just in my career, I've seen um, a much higher uptick in conversations around International Women's Day in women in technology over the past 10 or so years. So really excited to have that recognition and to have the discussion around gender parity, policy changes, closing the gender equality gap, and just generally making things more equitable. So I'm here for it. I love it. This is what this podcast is all about, right? You know, I heard that um, in other countries, women actually get gifts today. So just saying we should institute that. I wouldn't mind getting some gifts today. (laughs) Yeah, right. Um, I'm going to tell my husband. (laughs) Yeah, you want to talk about the theme a little bit? Yeah. Each year, International Women's Day, the organization, um, comes up with a theme. This year's is Choose to Challenge. It's meant to inspire us to challenge and call out gender bias and inequality in all of its many forms. So that could be anything from in the workplace, in technology, at home. Usually there's like a picture that everyone can take and spread the word about what that theme is. So this year, the picture is to hold up a hand like you're taking an oath and promise what you're choosing to challenge for that year. But yeah, so that's this year's. I can kind of give you an idea of, I know we talked about this, but um, I have went back and forth on what I'm choosing to challenge this year. And Moss, I want to hear yours as well. But I finally landed on mine and I had a really hard time um, deciding between like, you know, being a strong female voice in technology and choosing to challenge of being quiet in the workforce versus like as an almost mom, I'm, I'm seven months into my pregnancy like talking about how difficult it is to be a mom in technology. And I was like, wow, it's actually really interesting that those are two disparate concepts to me, which really, I guess they shouldn't be. My choice this year to challenge is not being 
upset to be excited to want to get back into the workforce after I have our baby, which I know sounds kind of strange, but I have already heard so much pushback about putting my baby in daycare or having a nanny and getting back into the workforce. And it is just lighting a fire under me to do it even more and bigger and better and just to come back stronger in my career and really kick ass. So I choose to challenge the fact that you have to be one or the other. I'm going to be both. Absolutely. I'm so excited about it. So Moss, what are you choosing to challenge? I love that. And if I know you, you will do all of it with flying colors. So I am not worried about that happening. Um, I thought about this too, because there's so many things I choose to challenge. And it was hard to focus honestly on just one. Um, One of the things I thought of originally was stereotypes. You know, I am an Indian American but I am not good at math or science. And I remember going through high school with everyone being like, oh, well, just ask her. She knows calculus. And, you know, I didn't. So, you know, that was one. And then I ended up becoming, you know, having an engineering degree. So there was that. But um, I feel like this has been a new thing that we've given a name to, and it's the imposter syndrome. So I choose to challenge the imposter syndrome. And if people don't understand what that is, it's literally that old adage of faking it till you make it. The issue with that is most of us are pretty qualified and we don't need to fake it. There's a reason we're in the room. There is a reason we have a voice. There's a reason we're saying the things that we are and learning and you know, maybe starting the businesses we are. So I think it's time to just stand up on our strengths, stand up for what we believe and stop saying that, oh, I'll just fake it till I make it. And I know I'm guilty of doing that as well. So I'm going to make a conscious effort to not do that. But speaking of strong women, um, we'd love to welcome Rachel Misick, who, as I mentioned, is the author of Second to None. It's a print book containing 27 original interviews with Chicago's leading female founders. It's a celebration of Chicago's next generation of female trailblazers. We love a trailblazer. Um, who are making waves, building community, and breaking glass ceilings. What I also love about this is that 100% of the profits of the book sales go to Chicago Foundation for Women. Rachel's someone who's been in my network for a while, and I remember the first time we met, we ended up talking, I think, for two hours on equality, BLM, um, all kinds of things, and I just loved her. So Rachel, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Everyone on this team, I'm just so honored to be here with such amazing women, especially in the month of March, celebrating International Women's History Month. It's just so special to me. And as Masami said, we have known each other for um, just a little bit. And I just absolutely love (laughs) Masami. I love everything she represents. And so it's just like truly such a special experience to be able to speak about womanhood and how it intersects career and and all of the ways in which this infiltrates our life and I think just like a broader societal narrative around women. So I was the writer of the book, but not the producer of the book. So long story short, a few years ago, I wrote a different book and um, it was once again, very much feminist in nature. Long story short, I actually used to work in education and I then found myself again with an English literature background, always having wanting to be a writer. I started just writing on the internet and a lot of that writing centered around feminism, female experience. And so I built up this, you know, little time 
tiny following um, while writing about these different feminist topics. And from that, I was contacted by a publisher to write a book with a partner out in LA. So I left my job and I went back and forth between Chicago and LA writing this book that again, very much was a feminist manifesto. And, you know, long story short, the book was not published, which was a huge blessing in disguise. Um, And it was a great learning experience. But through that, I built up like quite a network and someone that I met through that process worked with the women at Etiquette. So Etiquette is a female founded creative agency in Chicago. It's two years old. And I think through their process of building their business as two women and working primarily with female founders in Chicago, um, they just felt this urge to honor these women in Chicago. You know, they themselves having built this agency, just they knew what into you know, an entrepreneurial journey. And so they just felt like no one's really talking about this. No one's really talking about what it's like to really start something from scratch as a woman. So they just had this idea to pay homage in some way, shape or form to these women of Chicago building. In the beginning, it was small businesses. So my contact set me up with them to meet and I think it was instantly we were like, okay, this is going to be a great partnership. We just sat, you know, over coffee and we're just like, okay, yeah, we're totally on the same page. Our heads are in the right places. And so together over the course of a few meetings, we just ironed out what this project would look like. And we landed on this idea of a coffee table book full of original interviews. So from there together as a team, I think there were four of us on this project that um, ironed out this list of these 27 interviews with 29 women. There are two duos in there. Um, But we started at 75 different companies. Obviously, people who, you know, currently still reside in Chicago or maybe even just got their start in Chicago. And in this process, we were very adamant on one, having, you know, racial and ethnic diversity, obviously. That was super important to us and super top of mind. And then from there, diversity in industry and also in scale. I think that the last few years, specifically since the election of 2016, there's been this strong narrative of, you know, like girl boss feminism. And it's not to say that that is not advantageous to, you know, the um, movement towards equality for women. But I do think that tying a woman's worth to her financial success or her career status is not advantageous. And so we were super adamant on choosing different scales of businesses, but then also what qualifies as an entrepreneur, what qualifies as a business, because we do include an artist and a human rights activist. And, you know, that may be a typical, but I think that these are women who are building something on their own. And at that, they're building communities and they're doing good for their communities and they are breaking glass ceilings. And so the inclusion of their voices was just as important to me. So, yeah, I mean, over the course of, I would say it took us a few weeks to iron out this list of 75. And even that could have been like, you know, 500. There are so many women in this city who have small businesses, who are community activists, who are running a daycare out of their house. I consider that entrepreneurship, you know, whether or not, you know, this is, you know, a like, you know, high res glossy image of entrepreneurship, it is still real it is still valuable and it still deserves recognition. So, I mean, it it was very hard in deciding on these um, 27 interviews, 27 companies, if you will. But yeah, I mean, again, like top of mind was just having a diversity in voices and backgrounds and then choosing from multiple industries so that we could have a broad reach in terms of like our audience. 
you are just preaching to the choir here. <laughs> I I have so many things I want to say about what you just said. Like it, it literally resonates so wholehearted with me um, being, uh, my background is largely in startups and entrepreneurship in Chicago, helping other organizations build their brand. That was kind of my background before I joined my recent company. And it's something that is so near and dear to me. And the conversation around women entrepreneurs in Chicago is there's so much positive narrative around it. But when you dig a little bit deeper, there's also a lot of really tough trials and tribulations, you know, like how many of these people are building businesses to your point that are small businesses, you're still an entrepreneur, but maybe you're not building a unicorn, you know, like it doesn't have to be a billion dollar evaluation in order for your company to be considered successful. So just absolutely love everything you just said. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Also, I think one of the things we'll touch on later is around the Moms Marshall Plan, um, Marshall Plan for Moms, which is, you know, funding for, for mothers who have exited the workforce. To your point, daycare is super important. So these women who are starting small businesses out of their home, it's still entrepreneurship. It still takes guts. It still it takes a lot of grit. So absolutely love where you're coming from with all of this. And artists, of course, they're entrepreneurs. Like you're a one woman show. Anyway, so I totally went on a tangent because I 100% love what you just said. Um, but I wanted to start by mentioning something that you have touched on around the book, on your website, just in passing and messaging. Um, but the importance of featuring women from a diverse set of industries, ranging from tech to finance to hospitality and their stories as a testament to work being done in Chicago and everywhere now. We've all kind of went our separate ways in, in this pandemic and their fearless pursuit of their dreams. So just absolutely appreciate where you're coming from. I love that um, they are confidently and wholeheartedly taking their seat at the table, however big that table is or, you know, however they're building it. So appreciate where you're coming from with this book and so excited to talk about it. So I wonder, as you talk through um, all of these women's experiences and you hear their stories, what is your hope for how the book helps other women? Because obviously you you mentioned it could have been 500. What do you hope people take away from that? And also, I love that it's beautiful and it's a coffee table book because that means that people actually look at it. <laughs> so I 100% appreciate that too. Yeah. So again, in being adamant in choosing to highlight so many different industries and so many different scales of businesses, I think that, or rather, I hope that the takeaway from this is that irrespective of your industry or your scale, um, entrepreneurship is really hard. In the last 10 years, I really think since like the boom in the tech revolution, um, we've really glamorized entrepreneurship and we've really glamorized startup culture and in, in creating these unicorn companies. And, you know, our tech entrepreneurs are our new rock stars. And then also, you know, a girl boss narrative, you know, this adds a very, what I like to call like a um, ambient feminism filter to female entrepreneurship. And I just think that, you know, it isn't really telling of how hard entrepreneurship is. No matter if you are developing a tech company like the Mom Project, you are growing a VC like Chingona Ventures. You started a bakery. You know, like it is difficult no matter what industry you're in because 
it requires an immense amount of sacrifice, an immense amount of self-doubt. You know, you're really convincing yourself while convincing others that what you're doing is both real and valid. And then beyond that, you know, it's a lot of grunt work. People think that entrepreneurship is really glamorous and that like you get to wake up whenever you want, like you're the boss, you get to just, you know, like get coffee with people all day. That is not true. <laughs> I don't know who thinks that, but I would like to set the record straight. Your hours are 24-7. They are 24-7. You are on the whole time. And a lot of that is because, one, you know, when you're starting something, and it depends on what part of the race you're starting in. Some people start venture-backed, so they have more capital. Other people are starting out of their savings. Some people are starting literally out of their kitchen, like Rachel James and Paranova, the nail polish brand. She started out of her mother's basement with her friends helping her and her paying them and cooking meals for them. So no matter where you're starting, regardless, it is your baby. It is your project. At the end of the day, you are responsible. And so it's a lot of pressure. It's a lot of time. It's, you know, capital investment. You know, it's sacrificing what you want to do for what you have to do. And then also, you know, depending on where you're at and what your team looks like, you have a responsibility to other people. And you have a responsibility to make sure that, you know, their needs are met. If they're on payroll, those checks are clearing. That's a big stress to entrepreneurs. And that, you know, like they just feel supported in their work. So again, like there is very little glamour compared to the amount of hard work invested into any project. Again, that could be Allison Robinson at the mom project, which, which as we know now is kind of one of these unicorn companies recently invested in by, oh my God, the man of Reddit, Serena's husband. Can we just call him Serena's husband? <laughs> He's on their board of directors now. So it's like, you know, the mom project is, it, it really is a unicorn. But then we have, you know, Humboldt House. It is a like artisan and home goods store in Humboldt Park. And again, like this woman was working, you know, in hospitality, saving her money and then opened up shop one day. And, but, but regardless of scale, both of them sacrificed and both of them had to put in an immense amount of grunt work to get their operations off the ground. Yeah. So I feel like what I'm hearing is the takeaway is it's a lot of work. Be prepared to sacrifice things that you didn't realize you were going to sacrifice. And actually, um, just a quick side note, I worked for an organization for a startup that ended up being acquired. But the founder at the time was he was a male, but he was sing his butt. And he has since written a book called Scale Your Everest. And it is the analogy of starting uh, your own company and climbing Mount Everest because you literally at some point run out of oxygen because you are so exhausted and you get to this point where you're carrying so much load that whether it's Humboldt House, one shop in, in Humboldt Park or Mom Project, you are carrying a lot with you, your family, your friends, your payroll. <laughs> um, so I absolutely love that. You are 100% right. And if anybody who starts an organization goes into it with rose colored glasses on, I feel like it's pretty quick for them to realize it's a tough challenge. So absolutely love that. Moss, did you want to ask any questions as well? I feel like I totally took all of Rachel's time. Well, I think one thing that stood out to me there is not just the grunt work, but the fact that the women had to be very multifaceted. You know, you're kind of wearing all hats in the quote unquote organization, right? You're like doing marketing, you're the accountant, maybe you're then, um, you know, the person who might be setting up the chairs and tables. And I listened to an interesting podcast and it talked about the difference in power between man and women and how a man approaches, you know, fight or flight versus how a woman approaches that. And, uh, 
the interesting thing was women build a community to help versus either staying and fighting or like flying away. You know, they will talk to their neighbors and, and you know, help each other out during um, a hurricane or things like that. My family's in Houston, so that's near and dear to my heart. But, but there is so much of women helping other women in your story, which I really love. And I think one, we need more of that, but it's not just women. We need allies to also help these women get their businesses off the ground. I was interviewed by Women's Wear Daily last year about Black-owned beauty businesses and the 15% pledge. And I learned um, through my research to do, to help um, interview for that story, I learned that Black businesses get turned down for loans 50% of the time. So I know you interviewed Mickey Kendall and she said, there's no such thing as a trickle down equality. Can you talk a little bit about what you think this looks like for the future or how we can advocate for this equality and manifesting itself, not in just support. Like we can get people to go and go to the stores and go to women-owned businesses and stuff. But I mean, I'm going to say it, let's put our money where our mouth is, right? Like how do we help these women financially? Because that is what in the end grows their businesses. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I can say that speaking with Mickey Kendall was one, a um, like bucket list thing. I absolutely love her. She really is just such a profound found voice both in Chicago but you know in like a feminist narrative anyways but um yeah that line about there is no such thing as trickle down equality is truly one of my favorites from the book and you know her and I later went on Instagram live to have a conversation and she expanded on that a little bit more and you know much like we have acknowledged that trickle down economics are not effective this idea that pulling all of our resources for equality and this quote-unquote free at the top is not beneficial in creating equality at the bottom. And so, you know, what that means is that limiting access to health care in general, but specifically for women, limiting access to education, limiting access to, you know, like career benefits, to food, food deserts. That, that's a big issue in this country. To, you know, clean environments. This isn't beneficial to creating equity between gender equity, racial equity, class equity. In that conversation with Mickey, she really expanded on before we can talk about these central pillars to feminism being reproductive rights, being healthcare, we have to talk about making sure all women, irrespective of our age, our race, our background, can confidently go to a doctor. And our symptoms and our voices will be heard, will be respected, and will be treated. And that we have equal access in our neighborhoods, in our geographic locations to this sort of care. From there, let's talk about making sure women have resources within the workplace. As we know, women are caregivers. Traditionally, I think in the global society, women are caregivers. And we're really seeing the compound effects of that after, well, we're still in COVID, but certainly 2020, you know, the effects of women being caregivers and having to leave the workforce in mass to care for children, to care for sick family members. So workplaces providing resources for women to confidently fulfill their duties, whatever those duties may be to children, to spouses, to parents, to siblings, to community, whatever that may be, knowing that they can confidently do that and still keep their job. So flexibility in the workforce 
And then also just conducive workforces to diversity. So banishing racially charged dress codes, having these like requirements around natural hair or around dress, around appearance. It's shocking that in 2021 that still exists, but in really traditional corporate environments, it does. And it's a barrier to access. You know, much like I think even the language around a corporate trajectory or even around like mainstream feminism, they're barriers to access for all women. So these are the things that need to be disbanded in order to really start creating equity across the board for all women. I couldn't agree with you more. And I recently read something on stereotypes in the office, back to the choose to challenge. And stereotypes are such a thing about how people look like, and it doesn't only affect women, it, it affects the LGBTQ community as well. In applying for jobs, I see a lot of um, allyship there and fighting that cause together. Yeah. With the events of last year, specifically Black Lives Matter and the response from corporate America, which, you know, is lackluster in my opinion, because a lot of it is performative. Something that really sounds off for me is that there also needs to be different recruiting tactics in that you can find equally as qualified people, if not potentially more qualified, if we start placing importance on life skills and on some of these soft skills. You can find these people in community colleges. You can find them in areas in which you never thought to look because you're so hellbent on only looking in the Ivy League or in these more like top tier universities. But as we know, not everyone has access to those universities. And so if we really want to diversify our workforce, we need to start looking at alternative recruiting tactics because there is a lot of talent in places that I think traditionally have been overlooked. I absolutely love that. And I think what you hit on is that there's a barrier to entry into the workforce within education, and it goes all the way down to elementary school, right? I mean, in Chicago in particular, the school system and how you, I, it's so disparate between private versus CPS, it's crazy. So all the way down there. But what I feel like companies should realize, and your point is, is absolutely correct, there are soft skills and personality traits that make people successful that are not taught in a classroom. The grit, the just the ability to overcome challenges, the resiliency. I love that. You're totally right. And I can say out of every single woman I interviewed in this book, one common theme amongst all of them, there were about three common themes, but one of them that really stood out was grit and passion. Every single one of them had grit and passion and then acknowledged that in building their teams, what they looked for first was grit and passion out of their team members. You know, I couldn't agree with you more. And I, I kind of think that's how it is working with these four women on overworked. I had the idea back in January and it's been grit and passion that has gotten it out in, in six short weeks. I feel like um, this is the perfect segue to our third topic solutions because you've already mentioned two of them. The point of it is how do we create brighter futures, right? One, look outside the box. You just said it, like stop looking for this very prescribed person for a specific role. There's so many times that if you give somebody, regardless of gender or race, the opportunity to rise to the position, they will. So many times they will. So I think that's a great solution, giving people opportunity. And Moss, to your point, allowing women to do what they do best, which is, you know, connect with their community and help each other 
each other prosper. That's just two that I've heard in the past five minutes from you guys. I absolutely love it. What are some other ways that you guys think we can create brighter futures? And I think that women, I think that we are, we're highly compassionate. And because of that, I think that we're able to identify those traits in other women and place, place importance on them to really prize them. You know, it's not, we aren't just seeking pedigree and we aren't just seeking status amongst each other. We're seeking real passion and we're seeking an ability to build a community with other women. I think that's an innate trait of womanhood and it's so advantageous to us. I agree. I think it feels like this is the year of the women where we're actually coming together, having common goals and working together on how to, you know, get them achieved. I can talk to one from um, the perspective of just believing in yourself. I think we have a lot of women who have great ideas, but then are scared to go forth and, and they think, oh, someone's done that before. Or I don't know if anyone would buy that if I did that. So part one of that is just believe in yourself. And remember, there's a reason that your voice needs to be heard. Oprah talks a lot about this as what is your calling? And if you can join that calling with a purpose, that is more than enough reason to go forward and do it. And I think part of feeling comfortable in your voice is finding coping mechanisms that help you. So personally, for me, it's things like journaling, meditating, dancing, um, but it's also having wine with my girlfriends and, you know, talking about ideas and, you know, 75% of them never get done. But this podcast is an example of that 25%. Um, So sometimes I think women shouldn't be, and not just women, I think this is everyone, you shouldn't be afraid to fail because in that failure, you learn. And when you learn something, you can put that towards something else. Rachel, any parting words of um, things that we should think about for solutions? Well, first off, that reminds me of a quote from Donna Lee of Brown Bag Seafood in the book where she says, women need to identify what makes us emotionally resilient so that we can handle our work, our life, this balance, this this idea of balance, because in many ways, I think it's an illusion. And I think many people would agree that it is an illusion. But identifying what makes us emotionally resilient is the key to our own success. You know, I think that it's so common that women do experience this sort of imposter syndrome. And so identifying first off why you feel that way, which is systemic, you know, the world begs of women to be small. And it is an incredibly bold thing for women to step into these career paths very boldly, um, especially entrepreneurship, but identifying why you feel that way, being vulnerable about it. And then, you know, from there, identifying what is going to make me emotionally resilient. Is it my community? Is it my alone time? Is it, you know, my time with friends? Is it, you know, having a glass of wine at nine o'clock at night, whatever that may be. I do think that being highly self-aware is, I think it's something that is so important for women as we juggle so much between work, between family, between if we are caregivers. I think even if we're caregivers or not to immediate family, to children, we're caregivers to our friends. We're caregivers to our coworkers. Like we are always giving, giving, giving. And so I think that being really aware around what is going to make you emotionally resilient in this crazy, crazy expectation of womanhood and work, I think it's so important. Also in terms 
of solutions, I think it's so important that women's narratives are really put front and center. And these are like real working women's narratives, not just the pretty narratives, not just the easy narratives, not just the convenient narratives, but the ones that are difficult, the ones that are complex, the ones that really challenge our notions around what it means to be a woman, what it means to be a woman in the workforce. All of the things that we have to deal with every day. Um, I think that representation without action is essentially null and void, but I do think that having this sort of representation that is not merely performative, but instead is very direct. I think that, you know, it's only going to help women infiltrate the collective mind <laughs> in that, you know, we will eventually these narratives and these struggles and the solutions to them will become more status quo than if they are kept swept under the rug. So I do think that representation and in telling our stories very boldly and from the perspective of women, I think that it's important in terms of creating solutions for this like disparity between genders. I love that. Infiltrate the collective. There are so many times that my team talks about incepting ideas and making things happen by seeding them early, um, <laughs> which luckily women are good at because <laughs> I think to some extent we're seeding our future with these conversations and these bold narratives right now. So love that. Um, love the solutions. I think I'll add just one more and that is to build a network beyond what's what you're comfortable with. So put yourself out there a little bit to find allies of all sorts of, of groups, whether it's joining a new incubator or a new women's group or whatever it is, just finding more people to give you more new perspectives is a great solution to breaking out of your bubble, regardless of your gender or your race or your age. So that's mine. Moss, you want to close on anything? Yeah, I was just going to say, I agree with you there, Chalyn. I think you only really truly grow in the moments you're uncomfortable. And we need to start getting more uncomfortable. We need to start, like you said, Rachel, boldly telling our story, which is the premise of Overworked. So Rachel, thank you so much. I absolutely love you. I love what you stand for. I love how you write, how you speak about this. I love your grit and your passion. And just thank you so much for taking the time uh, to spend with us. And one last question before we get Caitlin to talk about inspiration. But if you could interview anyone in your future, who would you like to interview? Oh my gosh, this is so difficult because there are so many women I would love to interview. I think as it stands right now, a dream interview would be Angela Davis. I think that I would love to interview um, Joan Didion as a writer, as an accidental journalist, if you will. Joan Didion is just an icon to me. Also, it sounds cliche, but you know, she does open our book. Um, I purposefully used former First Lady Michelle Obama as the opening quote to the book because I just find as a Chicago woman. She is just the pinnacle of inspiration. And so it would just be such a dream. Amazing answers. And I have no doubt that one day we'll see your name up there with them. Thank you. Yes. Thank you guys so much. All right, Caitlin, do you want to talk about inspiration? Yeah, absolutely. So just a reminder, this section is kind of a space to dive a little bit deeper into the topics that we've talked about on the podcast. So additional resources, uh, articles, things that inspire us to take action. Obviously, the first shout out has to be Rachel's book, Second to None. We will link that in the blog and in the show notes. Take a look uh, when you have a second to read the full in-depth interviews with all 29 of those women. I also want to give two points related to the beginning of 
of the episode related to Chalan and Moss's Choose to Challenge pledges. For Moss's pledge to battle imposter syndrome, I'm going to link two resources. One is a workbook from the New York Times with really simple steps on how to overcome the emotions of inadequacy or imposter syndrome. So the internal work that it takes to feel like you deserve to take up space and feel like you earned your seat at the table. But I also want to recommend a resource from Forbes about the roots of imposter syndrome that I thought was really interesting because a lot of this is not necessarily based in emotion. It's based in policy and it's based in larger workplace structures that keep us from seeing people like us in the roles that we want to occupy. So really closely related to Rachel's previous point about entrepreneurship as the process of convincing your Self and convincing others of your self-worth and of your, your right to be there. So that's, that's ultimately why it's important to build diverse teams. It's important to have the representation to say, I have seen this person achieve the goal that I want to achieve, so I know that I can achieve it too. So definitely take a look at that from Forbes. For Challen's point on the pressures of working mothers, we mentioned it briefly earlier, but the Marshall Plan for Moms is a piece of legislation that's been introduced by Congresswoman Grace Ning of New York, and it advocates for a monthly stimulus for moms who have had their paid labor in the workforce replaced by unpaid labor at home. It also includes policies around paid family leave, pay equity, and it was spearheaded by the founder and CEO of Girls Who Code, Rishma Sajani who leads a, a foundation that's really near and dear to our hearts as a, a nonprofit that works to close the gender gap in STEM and technology roles. So we'll link both the website for the Marshall Plan for Moms and the full resolution on the blog if you want to dive into the actual proposed legislation. If the mission resonates with you, you can sign the petition on their website. Ultimately, a lot of these things, we can work on it individually as much as we want, but it takes collective action and it takes policy changes to make a real change as well. So make sure that you check both of those out. And again, second to none, we'll make sure to cite on the blog as well. Jill, do you want to tell everyone what's coming up? Of course. And Rachel, I really want to thank you again for all of your insights and the thoughts you shared during today's episode. If you like today's content, please subscribe to our channels on whatever platform you're listening on. We want you to be notified as soon as we release the newest episode so you can be one of the first people to listen to it. And also we want to hear your thoughts on what we're saying. Um, if you agree, if you disagree, any topics you want to hear. So if you would like to do that, please visit our website at www.weareoverworked.com or follow us on Facebook or Instagram at We Are Overworked or on Twitter at W Overworked. We'd love to hear your thoughts and get in touch with you. So that's all for today's episode. Thanks so much for tuning in and we'll catch you in two weeks.